0: Our Father, come now and prepare our hearts to receive your word. Help us to apply it to our lives in the ways you would call us to. In fact, we pray that your spirit himself would come and apply the word to our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. I'm very slowly working my way through a three-volume biography of Theodore Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt was the 26th president of the United States. Uh, This year, 2019, actually marks the 100th anniversary of his death in 1919. Uh, In my opinion, Teddy Roosevelt is one of the most interesting and exceptional Americans who ever lived. If you want to get your children interested in history, tell them stories about Theodore Roosevelt. His life story is fascinating, from overcoming asthma as a child to becoming a boxer in his youth, from leading the suicidal charge up San Juan Hill during the Spanish-American War to breaking up the major trusts such as Standard Oil and the Northern Securities Company as President of the United States. And by the way, he was once shot while delivering a speech but insisted on finishing that speech before receiving uh, medical attention. He also spent his retirement hunting elephants in uh, Africa. Yes. And it's um, a very exceptional figure. Um, he was also a man of tremendous principle and virtue, and that may be one of the things he's most well known for uh, in our day and age. As I'm reading this biography, I've imagined at a number of points what it would be like to bring President Theodore Roosevelt back from the dead to evaluate uh, American life, culture, and politics today. And I imagine there are dozens and dozens of illuminating insights that he would have uh, to give and observations he might make. But one thing that I'm sure he would observe is that our culture today is marked by profound moral confusion. And that would not just be the observation of a Teddy Roosevelt, but surely anybody who lived 100 years ago or even 50 years ago. We live in a time and in a culture marked by tremendous moral confusion. Uh, Matters that were once thought to be simple and basic and foundational to society, such as gender and sexuality, are now hotly debated issues. Uh, Is gender something that is determined biologically at birth, or is gender an elastic social construct? If gender is to be determined biologically, why should it be so? And on the other hand, if gender is an elastic social category, how elastic is it? And if gender is a matter of social convention, then can our view of it change over time depending on social conventions or the dictates of the wider culture? Take something else, something as simple as basic human life. Is it ever permissible to take human life? How about a baby? eight months old in the womb? How about someone on life support who no longer provides any utility to society? For some in our culture today, to take such forms of life would be considered murder. For others, to do so might be considered not only permissible but even virtuous if those forms of life prove to impose a cost on others. And both of these viewpoints, it's either murder or it's virtuous, both of these viewpoints are held with radical vehemence by various parties in our culture today. We are a society of moral poles and extremes and one marked by profound moral confusion. And what's interesting is that there seems to be no agreed-upon rules to determine who is right and who is wrong. Claims concerning what is right and wrong do not start with claims about what is objectively true, but rather how we feel or how we see the world from our subjective, socially and culturally conditioned perspectives. There no longer exists an agreed-upon standard for discerning what is right and what is wrong, and therefore truth is relativized. Now, friends, confusion over truth... Like what is objectively, absolutely, universally, invariably true? Confusion over truth always leads to moral confusion. If truth is an elastic category, morality will be an elastic category. If truth is a moving target, morality is a moving target. No culture can truly realize the values of truth, righteousness, and justice as long as standards of truth and morality are obscure. And no individual can live in the light of truth and righteousness unless the path of truth and righteousness is made plain to him or her. So, here we are in a society, in a culture where moral and epistemological confusion prevail. Now, what's the way out? We as Christians believe we have universal, objective truth in the Word of God. I don't mean to sound sort of mundane or or silly or something like that, but we just go to the book. We just go to the Bible. The Bible does not answer every question we might possibly have, but it provides us with a framework out of which we can address moral questions, questions of truth, questions of justice, questions of righteousness. Now, our text today is going to speak into these questions and into these issues. John eight twelve and following. Now I sent out an email yesterday. We we finished John seven last Sunday. Sent out an email yesterday explaining why I won't be preaching uh, John seven fifty three through chapter eight and verse eleven. If you have questions about that, feel free to talk to me after the service. So I pick up now today in John eight and verse twelve. I think we should understand there, verse 12, Jesus makes this great programmatic statement, I am the light of the world. He's continuing on, I think, from the last words he said in John 7, which are recorded for us in verses 37 and 38. There we read, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers Of living water. And then I think if you pick up in verse 12 of John 8, you get the next words that Jesus said. Jesus' next words have to do with him being the light of the world. And this statement from Jesus is going to lead to an intense back and forth with the Pharisees and the Jews who hear these words from Jesus. So so this statement in verse 12, I am the light of the world, is sort of the fountainhead for the whole chapter, and I think it even spills over into John 9 as well. It's that statement that conditions the rest of the dialogue Jesus is going to have with the Pharisees and with the Jews. A lot of people think that Jesus sort of makes this statement about light, and light never comes up again in John 8. The word is never used, and there's this seemingly unrelated digression started by the Pharisees in verse 13 that then continues for the rest of the chapter. So maybe Jesus had intentions of talking about how He's the light of the world, the Pharisees take Him off course and He starts talking about truth and about whether or not He's the Son of God and about Abraham and all those sorts of things. I hope to demonstrate that that's not how this chapter is structured. Rather, the digression that Jesus allows Himself to go on with the Pharisees is intimately connected with this statement, this idea that He Himself is the light of the world. So all I want to do this morning is open up verse 12, explain what we're to understand in this statement from Jesus that He is the light of the world, and then secondly, take up this digression that follows, and we'll follow it up till verse 31 today, and then we'll carry on next week. So, two points. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. What does it mean? What is it? And then secondly, the digression that Jesus follows with the Jews. So, first of all, consider verse 12 with me. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You may or may not remember uh, toward the beginning of this series, I said that one of the main features of John's gospel are what have come to be known as the seven famous I am statements. Uh, Jesus saying, I am, and then you fill in the blank. There's seven such statements in the gospel of John that have to do with Jesus' self-identity. And so the first one we saw a few weeks ago in John 6 verse 35 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now we have the second I am statement where He says, I am the light of the world, a critical statement capturing something of Jesus' self-identity. He will make the same statement uh, in the next chapter in John 9, the early verses of that chapter, and He will make it again. In John chapter 12. But remember, this is not the first time that this idea of Jesus being light to the world, it's not the first time it's come up in John's gospel. I'm thinking back now to the opening of the gospel. Do you remember what we observed there about those beginning verses in what's known as the prologue, the first 18 verses of John 1? We observed when we looked at John 1 that the prologue to the gospel, the first 18 verses, is sort of like the entire book in a nutshell. Some of the major themes are introduced and later expounded and opened up later on in the book of John. In fact, I suggested that perhaps John intended his gospel to be read multiple times, that now as you go back through those earlier verses, they're illumined by later material that's presented. Well, I think we have that in this case. The commentator D.A. Carson says this, the prologue, the introduction to John's gospel is a foyer to the rest of the gospel, simultaneously drawing the reader in and introducing the major themes. And it's there in the prologue, John 1, verses 4 through 5, we read this, in Him, the Word, who we learn is Jesus Christ, God made flesh, in Him... Was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You have this theme of light, first just presented there, the front of the book, not much is said about it. It Just says that in him was life, the life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness, darkness does not overcome it. It's mysterious, it's grand, but not a lot of flesh and bone is put on that. Well, flesh and bone, of course, is literally put on that in the person of Jesus Christ. We read John 3, verse 19, that light has come into the world. Light has come into the world. God has sent His own Son. Light has come into the world. So, this idea of the Messiah, the Word made flesh, coming into the world as light is already on the table in John's gospel. Now, in John 8, verse 12, Jesus states it with reference to himself in unequivocal fashion. And him was life. The life was the light of men. Light shines in the darkness. Light has come into the world. And Jesus says, now I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There's no ambiguity anymore. He, Jesus, is the light of the world. And he's calling men and women to follow him as light. And if they follow him, the promise is they will have him have him as the light of life. But there's more context to this statement even outside of John's gospel. This idea of the Messiah coming into the world as light is older than the gospel of John. The connection of the coming Christ with light imagery is all over the Old Testament. The most well-known text that comes to my mind is found in Isaiah 60. There in verses 1 through 3, speaking of the Coming Messianic age, the coming of the Christ, we read this Arise and shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The idea is that light will come in the form of the Lord Himself. The Lord will come, and He will shine on the world. He will dawn on the world like the sun, and and the nations are going to be drawn to that light, and they're going to bask in that light. They're going to be drawn to it, even as the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah comes and dawns upon the world. It's a striking image. And now Jesus is here. He's looking these Pharisees in the eye. They're well aware of Isaiah 60. And that promise of the Lord dawning upon humanity like the sun and the nations coming to him and basking in that light. They know that passage. And Jesus says, that's about me. I am the light of the world. The light has come in me. I'm shining for all to see and the nations will come and bask in my light. Well, that's something of the context to this statement from Jesus. Huge implications in these words, I am the light of the world. The light of the messianic age dawns, and it dawns in me, Jesus says. The light of the world is here in me. That's the context. But now, I want to ask a very basic question. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? I said that these statements, these I am statements, are meant to communicate something to us about the self-identity of Jesus. What are we meant to learn about Jesus, see about Jesus in this statement, I am the light of the world? We, we looked at that first statement, John 6:35, I am the bread of life, and we talked about what that means about Jesus. Now he says, I am the light of the world. I want to ask, what does this statement mean? And here's... What I think. Light in this passage and in many other passages in the Bible is connected to two major ideas. There's two things, primarily at least, I think Jesus wants us to see in this statement that he is the light of the world. Two ideas. Those ideas are truth and righteousness. As the light of the world, Jesus brings truth revelation, and he brings righteousness, moral purity, holiness to bear upon the world and on the lives of men and women. Truth and righteousness, let's consider both ideas one after the other. First consider with me this idea of truth contained in the statement, I am the light of the world. The first idea is truth. Jesus comes as light into the world, and the idea is that as the light he shines and reveals what is true. Jesus in his person brings revelatory clarity to the world. He dawns on the world like the sun, and his shining reveals the truth. Things can be hidden in the darkness. There's no clarity in the darkness. You can't see in the darkness, but when the light shines, things are revealed as they are, and things are shown to be true. The truth is brought To light. This is pretty obvious, right? If you and I were sitting in a dark room, pitch black room together, and I was holding four fingers in front of you, and I said to you, How many fingers am I holding up? It's a pitch black room. I could be that close to you, holding up these fingers. Well, you'd have no idea how many fingers I'm holding up, because there's darkness everywhere. It's pitch black. You can't see anything. What's true cannot be made manifest to you. But if you turn on the light switch. It's obvious how many fingers I'm holding up, it's right in front of you. The light shines on my hand and your eyes can discern the light shining on my hand and you can now discern that what is true is that I am holding up four fingers in front of you. That's something of what we're to see here in this idea that Jesus is the light of the world. But it's here, I think, that we need to understand a very important point, an important distinction. Jesus doesn't just shine as the light of the world and reveal what is true. He is the light of the world, and as the light, He is the truth itself. He doesn't just reveal the truth. He is the truth by which all other truths are seen and understood, the light itself is the truth, shining on everything else and revealing what is true for all to see. I mean, just think about the image of light. Light isn't something we deduce to be true. It's not the result of an argument. You don't infer light. You just see it. Just see it. Light is either seen or it is not. Jesus is either seen or he is not. And if he really is light, there's no argument to be made. There's just seeing to be done. Jesus is true because he's true. Jesus is light because he's light. The light is on. And if you can't see the light, it's not because light isn't on, it's because you're blind. That's what John 9 is going to take up, the very next chapter. It's no coincidence that John 9 comes right after John 8. What happens in John 9? Jesus heals a man born blind from birth. As the light of the world, he gives to this man physical sight and spiritual sight as well. Light is not analyzed or examined. Light is seen or it is not. There's a very famous quote from C.S. Lewis a great author, novelist, and later on an apologist. Maybe you've heard this quote before. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but by it I see everything else. Christianity to Lewis was like the sun shining, and I, I see the light, and by that light I see everything else. That's something of the idea we have in our text, with Jesus as the light of the world. How silly it would be to be standing in the rays of the sun and in the brilliant light of the sun and to deny the sun's existence. See, Jesus is the light. He is the truth. And all other truth claims are revealed in connection with who He is as the truth. He is the light of the world. In Him, the truth is revealed for all to see. And that's where this passage is going to go. That's the connection to... This digression, Jesus is going to go on talking about the truth. A lot of people fail to see that connection, but the next 50 verses are all concerned about what is true. So we're going to see verse 31 Jesus say, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth if you're my disciple, and the truth will set you free. That's just another way of saying whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. You'll have the light of life and you'll be able to see. You won't walk in darkness anymore in moral confusion, moral ambiguity, confused about what is true and what is not and what is right and what is wrong. You will have the light of life. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he says this, because he has dawned as the light of truth on all. And if you have the Lord Jesus as your light, you see things for what they are. You see the truth clearly. You see reality for what it is. You see what is true. So this is the first idea at the heart of this statement from Jesus, that he is the truth. He reveals what is true, and he himself is what is true. When he shines on the world such that the truth is brought to light, and those who follow him will walk in truth. Now, the second idea in our text, and that is righteousness. Righteousness. What are we meant to learn about Jesus from his statement, I am the light of the world? First of all, he brings truth, revelatory clarity, dawning upon the world, such that the truth as it is in Jesus is known and seen and beheld, and all other things are exposed. And he also brings with him righteousness, an idea intimately connected to this first idea of truth. The second idea is the idea of righteousness or moral purity. Christ as the light of the world represents perfect moral purity. And what's more than that, as the light of the world, he illumines the path to moral purity, the path of righteousness. He exposes what is right and what is wrong. If I walk in the light, I can now see what is right, and I can do what is right. And light, by its very nature, expels darkness. So where light is present, darkness cannot exist. Of course, you know in the Bible that that imagery of darkness has its own connotations as well. Darkness is associated with evil and with sin and with wicked deeds, Some of you know already the verse I'm going to call your attention to. Back in John 3, verse 19, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. Jesus has come into the world. Light has dawned on the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. The idea is that in the darkness, I can nurse and hang on to and cherish any hidden pattern of sin I want to. And I could even convince myself that I'm in this realm of moral confusion. I I can't even really discern what's right or wrong. After all, who's to make claims about what is right and wrong? In the darkness, sin and evil can hide, can parade itself around like something other than what it is. But see, in John 3, the apostle John is telling us when the light shines, people recoil from that light because that light, what does light do? It expels darkness. Darkness can no longer exist. And if there are wicked things that are being hidden and secret and cherished in dark corners, people will recoil from the light so they can continue in those evil deeds and those dark deeds. See, light provides moral clarity. Light is the source of righteousness But darkness is where sin dwells and where evil grows like a cancer. And in the darkness, evil is cloaked and hidden, and its wickedness cannot be seen for what it is. But when the light shines, sin can no longer be seen as anything other than sin. Right and wrong are made plain when the light shines. I want you to listen as I read to how the Apostle Paul makes use of this light and darkness imagery and how he applies it to believers in Ephesians 5. I'm just going to read verses 8 through 14. Writing to Christians, Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You hear the apostle, right? Light brings with it this moral component, this righteousness component, this moral clarity component. Right is seen for what it is, and wrong is seen for what it is. And for those who embrace Jesus as the light of the world, the one in whom is found perfect moral purity and righteousness, as those who embrace Him, they will walk in righteousness, and they will walk in freedom, and they will no longer walk in sin and in darkness and in moral confusion." Again, this becomes the idea later in the passage. The concern for righteousness is taken out later in the passage. Verse 31 says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? The next few verses will tell us it's freedom from sin. It's freedom from the unfruitful works of darkness. It's freedom from those evil deeds that are nursed and cherished in the dark, It's freedom to walk in light and to walk in righteousness and to walk in a manner pleasing to God, to walk in the freedom that Christ brings as the light of the world, to walk in the moral purity that He imparts to His people and that He illumines to His people to walk in the path of righteousness. You see how truth and righteousness go hand in hand with this imagery of light, light shines The truth is brought to bear, darkness is expelled, and righteousness is brought to life. And this is, in my mind, at the heart of what it means, that Jesus is the light of the world. He brings truth, and He brings righteousness to bear on the world in a transformative way. Whoever has Jesus sees and believes the truth about Him, and then walks in the freedom and righteousness that the light reveals. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The age of truth and righteousness has come, and whoever follows me will have the truth and will be free to walk in righteousness and light. That's something, I think, of what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. It's a grand statement, it's a grand idea. These ideas of truth and righteousness and the Son of God dawning on the world like the sun and and truth uh, uh, coming to bear on the lives of men and women and being seen for what it is and righteousness, this twin idea coming along with it, it's a grand idea. Someone says, that's great, but what does that have to do with my life, my relationship with Jesus, my walk with Christ? So it's at this point I want to share just a few implications, two implications in particular for believers. Two implications for Christians. Jesus is the light of the world. What does that mean for us? He says, I am the light of the world, whoever follows me. I hope we're the ones who follow Jesus. As those who follow Jesus and have him as the light of life. Let me just stop there. This is not at the heart of this passage. This is not even an idea that's featured largely in this passage, but I just feel the need on occasion to say this. I hear testimonies often of how people came to know Jesus Christ, and so often the story I hear is that um, there was some sort of experience in childhood, seven years old, eight years old, nine years old, and people normally tell it this way. Uh, I came to believe Jesus, have faith in Jesus when I was nine years old. But then I sort of went off the rails for a little while, lived in the world, and, and later on, I followed Jesus when I was 29 or something like that. So, so, I do not want to say anything about the sincerity of whatever happened at seven years old or eight years old or nine years old, but all I want to say is that according to the Bible, the nature of faith is such that you cannot believe Jesus in a saving way and not follow Jesus. We've talked about what faith is, right? Faith is, is not just mere mental assent. Like, I agree with what mom and dad have told me. I agree with these facts that the Bible is presenting. It's actually to know Jesus, to have Jesus, to taste Jesus, to want Jesus, to delight in Jesus, to follow Jesus. And I guess this is contained in our text. All the I am statements usually go along these lines. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me will not hunger, right? Whoever believes in me has faith in me. Parallel statement made in 8.12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, I contend that following Jesus and believing in Jesus are synonymous. We don't break those two ideas apart. To have true saving faith in Jesus Christ is to become His disciple and to enter in upon a lifetime of following after Jesus. You have not begun to truly have faith in Christ if you've not begun that journey of discipleship. That's precisely what Jesus is concerned with in our text. If you believe in me, if you have me as the light of the world, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That was a digression, not in my notes. Let's consider this first implication for the Christian. As those who follow Jesus and have him as the light of life, we should be those who treasure truth. We as Christians should be those who treasure truth. To have Jesus as the light of life is to know the truth, the truth as it is in Jesus, and it is to love the truth and to treasure the truth. We as Christians should want to see things as they are and know things as they are, Hidden things, dark things, moral confusion has no place in the Christian life. Christian people must be people of the truth as it is in Jesus. So our posture should be, I want to know whatever is true about God. I want to know whatever His Word reveals to be true about His Son. I want to know what is true about man and about sin and about salvation, about anything that God reveals to be true. The truth matters to us. The truth matters to those who know Jesus as the light of the world. We do not want fiction. We do not want pretense. We want to live in light of the objective truth of God as it is revealed in His Word and as it is revealed in Jesus. The truth matters to us. We're to treasure the truth, to cherish the truth. We want nothing other than the truth of God's Word, and we seek it out. We seek to live in the light of it. We want it to have its full effect in our lives, in our families, in our churches. My Christian friend, to be a lover of Jesus, the light of the world, is to be a lover of the truth. And to be a lover of all of the truth that is revealed by that light. I don't get to cherish simply part of the truth or the parts about the truth that I like that makes my life easy and comfortable. We as Christians cannot be afraid to look the truth in the face for all that it is. So, as a Christian, you look at the teachings of the Bible and say, Whatever is true, I will believe. Whatever my God ordains is right. Whatever he says, I will believe. And I'll ask my questions later, I'll work out the implications later. But I want to know the truth. I want to have the light of life, and I want that light to illumine for me everything that is true, everything that a sinner this side of glory can know to be true. So this is where it gets practical. If it is part of the truth in Jesus, the light of the world, if this is part of His shining light of truth, that we're to love our enemies, to pray for those who spitefully use us, then we must love our enemies we must pray for them. If the truth teaches us that we're to forgive those who sin against us, we must forgive others. If you have the light of life, you don't have the option of holding your mom or your dad at a distance for whatever it was that they did to you so many years ago you don't get to hold your enemies at bay as a Christian person. Part of what Jesus has shown us to be true as the light of the world is that we're to love our enemies. We're to forgive those who sin against us. If the light shows us that we must suffer many things in this life before reaching glory, then we must embrace suffering. If the Bible shows us that God hates hostility and bitterness and division in his church, then I must fight against hostility and bitterness and division in the church. You see how immensely practical this becomes. That Jesus is the light of the world and that the, if those who follow him that they no longer walk in darkness but will have the light of life, that's not just some distant ethereal abstract concept that we're just supposed to sing about and sort of wonder about. It gets immensely practical. Determines how you engage with the person next to you. Determines how you live your life. It says, whatever is true, whatever the light reveals, I want to believe, I want to embrace, and I will live according to that light and according to that truth. That's what it means to have the light of life. If we claim to treasure Jesus as the light of the world, we must commit ourselves to treasuring the truth as it is revealed in him. Second implication for Believers as those who have Jesus as the light of life, we should be those who treasure righteousness. We should be those who treasure righteousness. Moral ambiguity, moral confusion, a lack of clarity with respect to right and wrong, daily allowances for sin, That is the product of darkness. But moral clarity, and more than that, moral purity, is the result of living in the light. So as Christians, we should be eager to know what is the path of righteousness, and then we should resolve to pursue it, because we are people of the light. To have Jesus as the light of life is to hate sin and darkness and to love righteousness, and light. We should recognize that as believers, as those who have the light of life, He will not allow us to remain in darkness. He will shine on us, and there can be no duplicity in the Christian life. There can be no double life. He will shine on us, and we will not be permitted to walk in darkness. And so, in the Christian life, hidden patterns of sin have to come to light. You cannot remain in darkness as a Christian. The light of Christ must be brought to bear on our lives. To have Christ as the light of life means we cannot cherish sin. We can't hold our sins closely and cherish this little dark corner of my life. Jesus will shine on all. I don't get any dark corners. I don't get any crevices where the light is not allowed to shine. I don't get to cherish sin. I don't get to walk duplicitously. I don't get to lead a double life. There cannot be hidden patterns of sin, unrepentant sin in the Christian life. It must come to light. If we are nursing or hiding any known pattern of sin, we must come into the light. Sin and darkness are incompatible with the light. I'm not speaking to anyone in particular, I just put it to your conscience. My brother and my sister, if you are nursing a known pattern of unrepentant sin in your life, come into the light. That sort of darkness is inconsistent with what it means to have Jesus as the light of the world, to have the light of life. His word is, he who follows me will not walk in darkness. I just put it to your conscience. Come into the light. But be encouraged, brother or sister, it's a good thing to have such light in our lives. Nothing is unknown to Jesus. Jesus has shined on your heart as light. And even though dark and painful things may be uncovered, he is pleased to shine on you and to bring redemptive light into your darkness. Nothing is hidden from him, nothing's hidden from him. We may think at times it is, but nothing's hidden from him. And so if you have a saving relationship with Jesus, that should ultimately comfort you. His love for you is not based on a fiction about you. It's based on perfect and complete knowledge of the very worst about you. And more than that, he has committed himself to shining his light on every dark corner of our heart so that ultimately sin can be expelled And we can be free to walk in paths of righteousness. This is part of what it means to have the light of life. I remember with sweetness, I think I've told this story before, uh, the testimony of a young man who was recently converted, someone that a number of friends of mine had been praying for for many years, just a very hard-hearted kind of kid. He was in college, and it was revealed that he was leading some sort of double life. And in the context of that revelation, he was spectacularly converted. The the sort of conversion that, that people wondered, I mean, it was like meeting the person for the first time. It was extraordinary. I remember talking to this new Christian, and I asked him, what is the greatest thing about being a Christian? Here you are, you've been a Christian for a month. What's the greatest thing about being a Christian? And he said with an open face, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to hide. It's all known to my Savior. I don't have to hide in darkness anymore. I have nothing to hide. The gospel gives us that kind of freedom. kind of freedom from sin. To walk in the light with an open face before your Savior. Who is the light of the world. I'm not saying that Christians should just always confess to everybody and their grandmother all the worst things about themselves. Not advocating that. Not saying you need to go to your small group and start telling everybody the worst things you've ever done. Coming into the light will mean different things for different people. It will always mean opening it up to Jesus. It will always mean that. Like telling Jesus what's true, what's been going on, It will always mean opening it up to Jesus. It may mean also opening it up to your spouse, opening it up to your parents, opening it up to a pastor. It may mean different things for different people. It may not mean opening it up to everybody or even anybody, but it will at least mean opening it up to Jesus. And if it's appropriate, opening it up to others and allowing the light to have its effect. Those are some of the implications for believers. We should, as those who have the light of life, cherish the truth and righteousness that come with that light, but there's a huge implication here for those yet outside of Christ, and don't be worried. We're not going to talk about the whole digression today. I've given up on that already just in light of the time, but there's something that must be said to you who are outside of Christ that's of imminent importance. This is the implication for you. That Jesus is the light of the world means Jesus is the only light the world has and that he is willing to be had by all. That Jesus is the light of the world means Jesus is the only light the world has and that he is willing to be had by all. That's a true statement. He is willing to be had as the light of life by all. His promise to you today, to some of you kids today, to any others here who are outside of Christ, his promise is that if you come to him and believe on him, he will shine on you and banish your darkness. You won't have to remain in darkness anymore. One of my favorite verses is John 12, 46. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Isn't that wonderful? Whoever believes on me, the light of the world. This is what I've come into the world to do. I've come into the world as light. If you believe on me, you will not remain in darkness. In darkness. So I just ask, I'm not calling anybody out, but is there someone here today in a dark place? Walking in darkness. Jesus says, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to remain there, live there in darkness. He says, I can be the solution to your darkness. I can bring light into your darkness. I've come into the world as light. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness, and I can be a light to you, even when all other lights go out. There is so much darkness in the world. So much darkness in the world. This world is a dark place. We distract ourselves with iPhones and social media and movies and our jobs and the newest restaurant that opened up in town, and we could distract ourselves for a little while, but occasionally it comes to us with weeping and gnashing of teeth that this world is a dark place. But there is one who has come into the world as light, and he can deliver you from your darkness. And he will one day make this dark world a place of brilliant, blazing light shining in perfect truth and righteousness. My friend, the light has dawned in Jesus Christ, God's own Son. And if you will believe on him, forsaking your sin and your darkness, if you will believe him, put your faith in him and follow him, you'll have the light of life you'll have eternal life. You will enjoy paradise in the blazing splendor of the light of the Son of God. Arise, shine, for your light is come. There's coming a day when the glory of the Lord will be revealed upon us. I invite you to come to that light today. Let's pray together. Our great God, you have shined most completely, most gloriously, most splendidly in your own Son, the Lord Jesus, who came as light into the world, who shined as light into the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He came as the light of the world so that those who follow him will not remain in darkness, but will have the light of life. I pray now that each one would be drawn to that light, would be drawn to the truth and the righteousness that it conveys, that's shined forth through Jesus Christ the Savior. And Father, we beg you for any whose lives are pervaded by the darkness of this world, That you would be kind to shine into that darkness through your Son. And that you would draw people to that light. That they might have everlasting life to the glory of your dear Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.